Welcome to the DMC with Caroline Veek, a home for deep, meaningful conversations about politics, world affairs, and other important topics that fascinate and compel us. Let's get into it. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, the increasing crime in the city and in many cities around the country is a major issue that we think is undercovered uh, by the press and not given enough attention, yet it's on the minds of so many people that live in the city and cities around the country. So we're especially happy to shine a spotlight on this important topic. And I can't think of anybody better, and I have so many questions <laughs> that I genuinely want to know the answers to, and I'm very intrigued and excited to hear uh, your point of view. So I want to just start with sort of a general question. Why did you become a policeman, and what did being in the police teach you about people? Okay, can you hear me? Is this on? I can't tell. Great, thank you. I see uh, General Sidney Baumgarten here someplace, a friend of mine. We live together. There he is up there. Hi, General. I became a police officer in a strange way. I was working in Macy's. I went to college full-time, Manhattan College, and I was working as a stock boy. You could call him that in those days. You can't use that term anymore, I'm sure. Um, and I saw uh, an advertisement for a police cadet program, which was a totally new program. The idea was to get matriculating college students into policing. This was something that sort of came out of the Kennedy uh, administration. So New York City tried a, a version of that. I applied for it, and it was fun. It was a part-time job. Uh, I worked in different uh, units, but mostly on the switchboard, and it was fascinating. All calls coming in from, from all over the city. But I had three older brothers in the Marine Corps, and uh, I wanted to go into the Marine Corps as well. So I joined the officer candidate program, and you had to become a police officer or meet all of the tests uh, to stay in the cadet program. So what happened to me is I graduated from college, uh, became an officer in the Marine Corps, did not have to go on active duty for like 10 days, and became a police officer in that, that interim. So I went on active duty, I went to Vietnam, I decided when I was in, uh, in, in Vietnam, to I wanted to go to law school. So I really wasn't thinking about necessarily going back to the police department, but it seemed like kind of the logical thing to do. So I came back, I went to the police academy and uh, started law school, and I started working mostly in East Harlem, and I sort of fell in love with it. It was really... It was fascinating, you know. So uh, that's how I, I entered the department. Wait, what do you mean? You fell in love with it? Yeah. Tell us a little the, bit about that. The, uh, the excitement, the adrenaline flow, quite frankly. You know, yes, you have an opportunity to do good things, but it was very, very busy in those days. And I must say, I like that. So I was promoted to sergeant at a early age, and I graduated from law school, and I decided to stay in the department. It was sort of like, a, you know, a velvet trap. And then I, uh, I got promotions as we you know, went up. And it was, a, for me, it was a very good decision. I've enjoyed virtually all my time, every day in, uh, you know, in, in the police department. Uh, obviously, some days are less enjoyable than others, but uh, it, was, it was a good choice for me. So that's how I, I got into policing. If I spent a week or a year as a police officer, how would my perspective change, do you think? Well, I don't know what your perspective is now. But. <laughs> well, okay, I'll phrase it in a different way. What does the general public not understand about crime and policing? Oh, there's a lot of things. I think uh, people, you know, television gives everybody this indelible impression of what policing is like, and it's not like that. I think people think that it's pretty easy to solve crimes. You can do it in a half hour, you know. Uh, and, and how complex the city is, how complex the criminal justice system uh, is, and it becomes more, more complex uh, every day. 
but it has its own culture. As I say, I was in the Marine Corps for you know for a long time. It's not unlike culture in the in the Marine Corps. Uh, there's a lot of humor, believe it or not. Cops have a great sense of humor. You know, some of it you can't talk about, but uh, but uh, pretty funny. So uh, yeah, you would you would see uh, cops who are kind, who are you know who are smart. Uh, who are thoughtful um, and just that that never comes across you know to the average person but the cops generally are pretty smart but when I was the commission about 30% of the NYPD had college degrees I think it's gone down since then but that also surprises uh, a lot of people there's 60 college credit requirement to become a police officer and there's a rumor now that because of the difficulties in recruitment, that they're going to eliminate that requirement, which would be a big mistake in my, in my opinion. But you'd enjoy it. Who do we want to be police officers, and how do we get them? Well, I think that the world has changed in terms of the general environment for police officers. It's much more difficult now. It's, it's less dangerous than it was years ago but it's more difficult to certainly interact with the community. There's, a, there's definitely hatred for the police in certain areas. and So that's what I mean, the job became more difficult. After the death of George Floyd, there was a, you know, a sea change. The world of policing changed uh, dramatically. All sorts of rules, laws, regulations, uh, throughout the country were changed to m m better restrict police officers and what they're doing. Of course, the, the picture of Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck you know, was imprinted in so many people's minds. So that brought about the change. It made it much more difficult for police officers to do what we call proactive policing. Uh, it's almost all reactive uh, now. But just an example in terms of why it's more difficult. The New York City Council has done a lot of things to restrict the, the police. And one of the things they did was to put in what's been called the diaphragm law. So it's restricted police officers from putting their hands on certain parts of the body to arrest somebody. And it's very, very difficult to arrest someone who doesn't want to be arrested. And if you're not, you know, restricted in terms of using your, your hands. Something else they did was to eliminate the defense of qualified immunity, which actually exists for all civil servants. But the city council specifically passed legislation that prevents police officers from using this defense. This is sort of a good faith uh, defense. It means now that they are potentially sued personally and you know, can lose their, their property. The city may or may not indemnify them if they're sued like this. So it's a very clear message to the police officers that uh, you're at risk when you're out on the street. And we know that a lot of police officers have left the department and continue to leave. But they also, the ones that remain, want to get off patrol because that's where the real hazards lie for them. Everybody has got a camera, including the police. They're wearing cameras. The, for instance, you'll see these videos where you know, the police are struggling to arrest somebody and they start to punch the police so they, they run away. Now, the district attorney here, Alvin Bragg, in this county, had taken the position that he will not write up a resisting uh, arrest complaint. So even, you know, the police officer, you may have seen it, the transit police officer fighting with another uh, police officer, he was ultimately arrested, but he was not charged with resisting arrest because Alvin Bragg, you know, made that. Uh, made that decision. So just some of the things that police see as being stacked up against them, and it makes them 
hesitant to uh, to engage, and I think that's one of the reasons why we see a spike in crime. So what would be the right balance, in your view, between supporting police to be effective and holding the police that do do bad things accountable? And is there is there anyone that's getting that balance right? Yeah, I mean, that's the challenge. And it's certainly a challenge as a police commissioner because you've got to get people to do the job, but you've got to, you've got to support them, and you have to take disciplinary action, certain action when it's warranted. So, you know, it's an ongoing uh, challenge, ongoing test to, uh, to do that. I like to think I, you know, I did it well, but, you know, other people probably think I didn't do it well, but it is, that's something that you've got to do every day in that, in that job. In the NYP, there's 54,000 employees. Now, I mean, the uniform people is about 35,000 now, but that number keeps, keeps going down. Probably at least five or 6,000 have retired since uh, the end of 2020. It's a huge number. It, you know, it's happening throughout the country, by the way. But the NYPD is so big that the numbers are really you know, dramatic. 5,000 retirements. Trying to replace those people is, is very difficult. And what's the biggest thing the mayor could do to keep them? Not much. Um, unfortunately, I think that ship has sailed. Uh, I think it's very difficult to turn things around. The city council is part of the problem as far as retaining cops. And, uh, you know, the mayor has very little control over them. They are uh, way out there, and they're going to continue to to be in that, in that position. So uh, I don't know. It's not a question of money. You know, you can say, well, we'll raise their salary. No, it's, it's, it's deeper, deeper than that. What you see is if you're a police officer with less than five years in the department, uh, you get no benefits in terms of your time. But if you have over five years, there's something called vested interest where you will get some money on your 20th anniversary if you had stayed on your 20th anniversary. Well, what's happening now are people at all levels are leaving, even the ones with less than, less than five years. And as they go out the door, you're taking a tremendous amount of expertise with them. Just imagine if you had a New York City <clears throat> detective with 15 years on the job working in midtown Manhattan. You know, an awful lot of experience that is so hard to to replace. So that is uh, that is a major problem right now. And you don't think there's anything we can do? I, I think it's going to take time. And uh, no, I don't think there's anything. Uh, look, obviously, the vast majority of people are going to stay. You know, people need a job. Uh, they may have a good detail. It may be good commute. I mean, everybody has their own situation. But I've been around a long time. I've never seen anything like this. Even after 9-11, we've had a lot of retirements that nowhere near this number. So you referenced the anger that sort of exploded with, the, with George Floyd's death. What drove that anger in your view? And what was unjustified and what was justified? Well, I think a lot of people saw that picture of, uh, of uh, Coven with his knee on George Floyd's neck. And they said, to them, it was suspicions confirmed. Aha, this is what happened. This is what they do. It just happened to be this jerk doing it in front of a, in front of a camera. So I, I think a lot of it, I think it was so significant that, that drove a, a lot of people. As I say, this was sort of, lifting a curtain. This is what really goes on. And do you feel that's because a lot of people had had personal experiences? I mean... No, I think uh, I, I think there is a, a lot of animosity uh, directed at the police. I don't think it is, you know, it may be based on uh, stories that they heard years ago, whatever, but, you know, overreaction on the part of the police uh, it's, it's sort of oversold. It's not, not happening nearly as what, what people think, but I think that image said, aha, this, they really, 
this is what what happens. And and a lot of this is driven by um, activists who were you know very effective. I was amazed at how quickly it was a major disorder here. It was the next day, and that was the day that uh, it was, I think the death of George Floyd was May 26. I think it was May 27. So 450 cops were injured the next day. Uh, this, the administration had stopped the sort of control training, de Blasio. And uh, I had that training done every day in the department, some element of the department. Because handling disorders, you need discipline, you need formations, you need to practice it. So whatever reason, they stopped that training uh, when he, he came in. They had some other units, uh, but they were not nearly big enough to take on a citywide riot. I had seen it when I was a, a police officer in the 60s and 70s, in the whole city exploding. You need that kind of training. And they didn't have it. I mean, they have since reinstituted it. So they, they were not prepared for that, and you saw what happened, you know, throughout the country. Obviously, in uh, you know, Minneapolis and uh, and other places. So it went on for for quite a while. That's all. That's what made the police. One of the things that made the police just withdraw. They are not uh, engaging, and they're still not engaging in what I call proactive policing uh, now. Not in, in this city, anyway. So it seems to me that at the time there were obviously there's widespread support and you know suspicion or anger towards the police and now it feels like people maybe are still sympathetic to some extent but are like listen crime is exploding in my neighborhood it's affecting me or I'm hearing about it and we have to get this under control what what works what will work Well I suggested uh, three things I did an article in the in the post if you look at the crime statistics, <clears throat> what's going up, obviously shootings are going up, they're down a little bit now, but those shootings happen mostly in poor areas in the city. Not exclusively, but most of them do. But the crime rise that we see is all over the city, and it's what I call sort of the mugging crimes. Robbery is up 40%. Grand larceny from the person is up 50%. Burglaries are up 30%. The theft of autos, grand loss in the auto is up 50%. These are high numbers. And by the way, they're being compared to de Blasio's administration, which was not known for its great crime-fighting uh, accomplishments. Uh, so what I said is the first thing that should be done is to put back in place the civilian closed units called the anti-crime units. This is work that I did myself years ago. Um, you are observing, looking for street crime, and you can do it in a variety of ways. Some places are prone to that. You have to stake it out. Like, you use taxi cabs. You use, uh, you know, FedEx uniforms if you have to, that, that sort of thing. Because, you know, the criminal element knows very well that the police are not out there. The anti-crime units are not out there. So they're not looking over their shoulder. You know, and you have to make them realize that there are people out there looking for them. Now, there were 600 police officers assigned to this kind of work. They were all taken, you know, taken off of those assignments. Why? They, uh, that's a good question. De Blasio took them off. Uh, something about they were controversial. You know, they were never controversial during my 14 years as commissioner, but all of a sudden they became controversial. Now, you know, it's sort of uh, high-risk work because you you see people actually committing robberies and you're, these cops are engaging with them, but they do have, generally speaking, tactical advantage because they're in civilian clothes, so crime happens. They can pick and choose the spot where they where they apprehend him. So I, I think it was overblown, but they still have not put that back in. Secondly, stop question and frisk. People just don't understand what this is, 
is all about. It's a perfectly legal police function. It's from the common law. It is verified by uh, Supreme Court case Terry versus Ohio. It's codified. It's in the it's in the criminal procedure law of of New York State. <clears throat> so there was a uh, well. It was a judge who held on to litigation for 14 years. She was in here in the Southern District of New York, and there was a a trial. Uh, at, it, question was 19 stops. Now, stop, question, and first it basically uh, two functions. You stop someone, you talk to them, or and you can pat them down for your own safety. Not as a search, but as a pat-down. Somebody have a weapon on them, that, that, that sort of thing. In that case, there were 19 stop, stops, as I said. She finds that 10 of the 19 meet constitutional muster. There's an expert involved in the case. He looks at like 4 million stops going back many years. He finds that 96% of them meet constitutional uh, requirements. Yet she makes a decision, by the way, no jury, just she does it, that it was unconstitutional as applied. Nobody knows what that means. It was never used before, the term. She was removed from the case after the decision by the Second Circuit because of pretrial public statements that she made that were prejudicial. Uh, but anyway, that, that de Blasio, that case was going to be appealed, was appealed by Bloomberg, but there was not enough time. He, it was at the end of his term. So uh, de Blasio ended the, uh, the appeal. But it is a tool that should be in every police officer's toolbox. We've done an awful lot of training to have, have, know how police officers should do it. And every police officer on patrol uh, has a camera now. So, I mean, it, it safeguards built in. Why in, do you think it's such an effective tool? Because it's just a word, a word on the, on the street. It makes sense. You don't carry a gun if you, you, can, be, you can be stopped. And uh, we know now that a lot of people are carrying guns. And a lot of it is a, a, it's a rationale, a rationalization, because everybody else has a gun. Hey, I've got to carry a gun because this guy's got a gun. Yeah, so it's, it's, it, feeds, it feeds on itself. But we had, I just want to say one more thing about stop question for us. They do it now, but it's about 1,000 a month. We did it. It was about 600,000. I said, oh, gee, that's a tremendous number. Well, it amounted to less than one stop every week per patrol officer and less than one pat-down every two weeks. Was, you know, things are bigger in, in New York. So we could never get that fact out. We could never, you know, the term frisk is pejorative. You know, nobody wants to be frisked. I understand that. So I think that should be uh, reinstituted, reinvigorated. The other thing I, I recommended is we need cops on the subway, on the platforms, not uh, upstairs in the mezzanine looking at their phone. And um, it, it, they're doing things now, like to get extra police on the subway platforms, they're using the patrol force on the street when they have additional time to go into the subway, make a visit, and come back up. Well, you know, cops being human beings, they look for an excuse to not, not to do that. So subways are the lifeblood of New York. We've got to get people back on that subway. All the polls show that people are not riding the subway because of crime, fear, fear of crime. We only have about 60% ridership, and it's probably going to stay like that for, for quite a while. So those are three things I think that would make a difference. It's not a panacea, uh, but this would give a message to the criminals, uh, the, certainly 
the anti-crime units and, uh, and, and stop question first, that the police, is back, the police are back in the enforcement game. That's not the messages out there now. Who are the criminals in New York? Who commits crime? Who commits crime? Well, uh, you know, young people uh, have always had some involvement in, in crime, but we see a lot of gang members making, uh, committing crimes, crimes against themselves, uh, they're shooting each other. I mean, that, that sort of thing. I want to tell you something that I did. I'm patting myself on the back, but <clears throat> we had a, uh, a gang problem. So I doubled the size of the gang unit. And in each gang unit, I put a lawyer, a lawyer to interact with the district attorneys. And I also put what I'm going to call a sort of a lexicon expert. Somebody who knew the internet, the code that young people use. I'll give you an example. They may call a 42nd Street here, uh, referred to as the Deuce by a lot of people. But in the Bronx, the Deuce may mean something else. So we were actually we were actually changing this lexicon like every six to eight weeks because they, they were changing it. And we were doing it, we were going through their accounts, Facebook accounts, any event. As a result of that effort, 455 arrests uh, were made and 25 major uh, investigations were uh, enacted. Now that's not going on, that's not going on now. But gangs and gang membership is still very much, uh, very much a problem. But it's not the only people that are out there. You know, certainly drugs drive some people to commit robberies, that, that sort of thing. But the gangs are a major, uh, major challenge. I did some work in, in well, Memphis, and the Memphis has always had very high murder rate. So I asked them, how many gang members do you, do you have in the city? And it told me ten uh, percent. I said you're totally wrong. And I, 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 said, I said you have at least sixty. Uh, you know, sixty percent of your crime are from gang gang mm -hmm. members. And I came back and said you're right. They weren't even looking at that. But it just reinforces the notion that crime is 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 a significant part of what we deal with with gangs. So, what percentage of crime in New York do you think is committed by gang members? I'd say maybe, it depends on which crime you're talking about. You know, anywhere from 40 to 60%. And what about the remaining chunk? Who accounts for that? You know, it's, uh, sometimes uh, homeless people, sometimes professional criminals, uh, you know, drugs are driving uh, a lot of it. So it's somewhat eclectic, but uh, gangs are a major part of our problem. How do you think about, or how do you think the mayor should deal with homeless issue in New York and seemingly an increase in mentally ill homeless people? Well, I like the fact that he is uh, taking down these encampments. I think that, that should have done uh, a while ago. Homelessness is a, uh, you know, not an easy problem to deal with because I think most of the people, I base this on my own experience, we're talking to a lot of homeless people. Most of them have significant mental problems. <clears throat> we try to write it off as a housing issue. It, it's not a housing issue, in my view, for the most part. It is a <coughs> problem of uh, mental health. I think we need an inventory of who's out there. I don't think we have enough information. You send teams out, interview them, try to get as much information as you can try to get them to agree to uh, treatment. You know, there's something called Kendra's Law, which gives judges the ability to put people into, involuntarily, into uh, mental health facilities. But uh, it's, it's, a high, it's a high bar. It's a high uh, place to get to. I think we need, and in this last budget, I think the governor is talking about increasing beds for mentally ill people. Uh, I think, for instance, on Cuomo's last budget, they reduced it to like 70, 
70 beds or something like that. It was way too low. So it was going in the other direction, you know, to have professional help for for these people. But it's a difficult, it's a difficult uh, problem. One of the major arguments during the BLM protest was that the police are dealing with all kinds of problems, that the police aren't necessarily the best people to deal with these issues, one being like responding to mentally ill patients. Do you agree with that? Are there things that police are currently being held responsible for that really should be other people's responsibility? Yeah. What's your view on that? Well, I've been involved in that issue for a while. I was a captain in the emergency service division. Now, the emergency service division is a group of specially trained cops. They're the heavy weapons people, but they're also EMTs, the emergency psychological technicians. They have an awful lot of training with and how to deal with emergency and mostly serve people. And I saw them in action, and they are terrific. You're very effective. We've tried these experiments through the years where you bring in professional uh, workers, uh, you know, mental health experts. They don't want to do it. And, and almost all of these people uh, present a, a uh, threat, a physical threat. I mean, uh, I've seen them where, you know, they're standing on a table naked with a, a, a pot full of lye. You know, that, that sort of thing. At, uh, but these cops are amazing. They, 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 solve the, they solve these problems. So people don't know that story. And they, you hear this, well, why should cops be doing that? The reason is they do it more effectively than, uh, than anybody else. I think, yeah, if, if you could get other people to do that work, sure. Because it is also dangerous work. Every once in a while, you know, a case will go bad. There's about 125,000 of these calls a year for emotion disorder people. So that is a big number to uh, to deal with, and they handle them. Uh, you know, I'm just I just was always very impressed with how they how they did that. Is bail fundamentally unfair, and is there a better solution? Well, bail, you know, by its nature, I guess, is unfair because. It's based on the individual's ability to pay. So if you are you know, wealthier than somebody who's arrested for the same charge and he can't raise the bail, it, it's unfair. But bail reform has kind of swept the nation. And uh, it's working pretty well in most places, except New York. And the reason for that is in all 49 other states, there is uh, the ability of judges to make a determination on dangerousness. The New York State uh, Assembly, and, and the Senate too, but the Assembly decided they did not want to do that. And the reason given was it will be uh, unfair to minorities, people, people of color. Well, the reality is that uh, you know people who are arrested in in New York about ninety percent of them are people people of color. So I mean it's just <laughs> that's that's the universe that you have to deal with. So that's what's being argued now. They are not going to do it. They're not going to do it because they don't have to do it. They're kind of sticking your finger in the eye. We're not doing it. Now the governor just did something through at the bail, uh, not the bail, the budget negotiations in April. She pushed a provision that says judges can now give a look at the possibility of leavening, leavening bail to people who have another charge pending. So she's complaining that the judges don't know that. You may have read something in the paper where she's saying uh, they're not doing their homework or that they don't know. I don't know if that's going to change anything because they don't have to. They don't have to uh, give bail. So the idea there is that if the person has been rearrested, so then they have two pending that they can the judges can hold them. That's what she's arguing. They can. They can. Potentially. Levy bail uh, on them. You know, the law actually says that you have to 
use the 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 least uh, uh, what's the word uh, strenuous, uh, you know, provision. Least so if they, you can put an ankle bracelet on them, you know, that could be could be enough. But they don't have to uh, let that person out on bail. So if you were writing the bail reform law. What would you ideally want it to be? I would, I would have the legislature go back and put in that dangerousness provision. Because judge were, judges were doing that de facto before there was a, a bail reform law. They were looking at the individual, saying, hey, this person is dangerous, so we're going to have a, you know, more of a problem with him. They'll make the bail higher. You know, but, so that all went out with bail reform. Bail reform basically says... For almost all misdemeanors and all nonviolent felonies, you can't levy bail. I mean, that's a that's a major a major change. Uh, so that that you know that's changed uh, lots of things. Got it. All right. Some questions from the audience. <clears throat> what do you think the appropriate gun carry law in New York City would look like? Well, it's, we're going to see. I mean, a lot of this is a uh, recent Supreme Court uh, decision said basically that you can get a carry permit in, uh, you know, in New York, New York State. And they're talking about a lot of silly, uh, you know, regulations, what uh, what websites do you go to, that, that sort of thing. So I, whatever comes out, I don't think, you know, it's probably going to be litigated uh, right away. But if you look at a state like Florida, in, in general, people who have carry permits are not committing crimes. And that's true throughout the country. Florida, for instance, is a good example. You have a lot of people with carry permits there. They're not committing crimes. It's the illegal guns, it's the stolen guns that are, that are, that are being used. So I don't think it's going to present a big problem. But I could be wrong. There's definitely a movement on a part of people to get carry uh, permits now to buy guns. You know, gun sales have gone way up. I think they, I think they doubled since 2020. Uh, you know, legitimately going into a gun store, getting a permit, doing having a background check, and getting a gun. So, so am, I, if I, am I right if I understand you saying that you don't think that legally held guns are really the problem, it's illegal guns? It's illegal guns, and I don't think that the legally permitted guns will be much of a problem. It could be wrong. We haven't seen it in other places in the, in the country, and as I say, haven't seen it in Florida. Do you think that drugs should be decriminalized? Should be what? Decriminalized. Decriminal drugs? No, I don't. I mean, I think is uh, I'm I'm not a supporter of legalizing marijuana. There has not been a definitive study on the effects of marijuana long term. In fact, like the, the the CDC or the National Institute of Health have not looked at this issue intentionally. So, you know, is still marijuana is still against the uh, the federal law. But uh, I think it, it, you know, now, whatever it is, THC, whatever that element is in, in, in the marijuana, it, it's generally speaking become much stronger. Uh, it's much more powerful now, uh, certainly on the street. I mean, you're going to have legal selling of pot, of weed, but you're going to have a burgeoning uh, illegal private market, just as we have now. I don't think that's going to go away at all, but I, I, I'm not a supporter of it. We just don't know enough about it. But you would not agree with those who argue that if we decriminalize drugs, it'll reduce crime because, you know, you're bringing sort of illegal behavior into the legal uh, market where criminal behavior yeah, it's, is not required. I, I, I think there's always going to be illegal markets, uh, you know, because the government regulation will be so restrictive that you'll always have some crime attended to it. And that's a theory. We haven't, we really haven't seen that uh, anywhere. The drugs that are decriminalized throughout the world, you know, marijuana and, and low-level drugs, 
you know, fentanyl now, we have a huge overdose problem in this country. We've had over 100,000 overdoses of uh, fentanyl, of, of uh, people dying, and uh, about two-thirds of them are fentanyl. And, uh, you know, you say, how does it get in here? Well, some of it is illegal because it is a drug for cancer to fight pain. But most of it is not. And I was the U.S. Customs Commissioner. And uh, if you go down to the border, you can see trucks at each of these places as far as the eye can see. They're just waiting to get into the U.S. You could not stop 10% of them. Otherwise, trade would grind to a halt. So about 60% of almost all illegal drugs are being trucked across the, the border. And they have some very ingenious ways of doing it, you know. A lot of false walls and things in the, <coughs> you know, built into trucks. What's the most effective way to stop it? it we don't have an effective way, uh, quite frankly. I mean, we have to we'll keep you know, we, we obviously do these searches. It's coming from China, and it's coming to China through uh, to Mexico, and we have not effectively developed a, a way of intercepting them. They're very, the pills is very, very tiny, very small, so easy to, easy to hide. So it's an ongoing problem. What can the NYPD do to regain public trust? Well, I'd like to think that, you know, quality service uh, would help in that, in that regard. That's what, that's what people want. They want faster response times. I mean, the response times now are terrible. You have a crime in progress. I think the response time is now nine minutes. Uh, that's because that's a function of fewer people. You know, so... It, you know, it's a it's a, a problem that continues to be generated by headcount uh, reduction, but just quality service. Uh, I've I've always advocated that a college degree be required to be a police officer. Now, with this exodus, it'd be pretty hard to do that. But I think it would make a a big difference. I think that would be the most significant change that we could do in getting the right people into into policing. Why do you feel the college degree is so important? Because it is sort of a it is a recognized standard, uh, really. You know, throughout the world, you have business, you know, hiring college college degrees. I mean, people with college degrees. It just has a uh, you know a a more mature level of obviously of education but in in knowing how to deal with uh, with people NYPD accepts equivalency diplomas now and that's not the job has become a lot more complex you know, there's a lot more technology involved that's not in my mind getting the job done we need people or you have to pay for it you know you have to pay people more money and yeah that's a whole other Megillah, because when you go, negotiate with the police, you're negotiating actually for about 150,000 other city workers because their contract is tied on to the police contract. Sanitation's contract is tied to the police contract. Fire department contract is tied to it. So getting increases for, for education, which I've advocated for for years in various forms, is not easy to do, particularly now with the, you know, with the headcount problem they have. How do you get more young people to want to be cops? Well, yeah, you know, it's a young college graduates. I'm sorry. It's a young college graduates. Apparently. Yeah, right. That's, that's that's a difficult question. I mean, everybody's having trouble recruiting in the military, having big big problems uh, recruiting. The cadet program that I was a product of, some variation of that, where maybe all college tuition is is uh, paid for or paid for incrementally, that that sort of thing. Uh, I think that that could sell. When I did it, we we got virtually no money, and the cadet program in the NYPD started paying more money. 
but maybe if you if you pick up if you make it a scholarship, it may uh, attract the, the kind of people you want. I have a number of questions here. What would it take for you to run for mayor? <laughs> no. I was asked not to run by uh, Mayor Bloomberg's uh, people. So uh, this is a while ago. That was too late for me. But I think, uh, you know, I, I, I know Eric Adams. I've known him a long time. I'm not a fan. But I hope he can do, he can turn the city around. I hope he can do some of the things he's talking about and not just talk. He needs action. And so far we, uh, we haven't seen it. But uh, uh, I hope he can, uh, he can uh, meet the challenge. Why are you not a fan? I know him a long time, and uh, <laughs> it's personal. We have to go into it. No, not part. No, I mean it's you know, it's, uh, you got to look at his <laughs> record. And by the way, he lived in New Jersey, <laughs> which I thought, I thought that was pretty strange. Uh, you know, he he went to uh, <laughs> reporters. He went to his house in Brooklyn. He had like two suits. And a, a, a 1990 television in a basement. Yeah, this is where I live. He said, "Yeah, right." They just didn't want did not want to pursue that. But uh, anyway, I wish him well. What's his reputation amongst in the police community? He's not liked in the police uh, community because he spent um, his whole police career bashing the uh, police department. He started as a transit police officer, which was a separate department. They then merged with the NY, NYPD. But that was his uh, shtick. I mean, he said that's why he joined, to straighten it out or whatever, you know. So uh, that, it, it, that had, did not make him particularly popular. So in terms of what he's done so far, what do you think he should keep doing? What do you think he should stop doing? And what should he start doing? I think you should stop going to every conceivable press conference. That uh, I mean, uh, why was he there meeting the bus of coming from Texas? If I, I mean, <laughs> that's kind of a welcoming uh, effort, you know. We, 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 I thought he didn't want him to come, but oh, we're going to be here and, uh, and welcome him. Uh, I think he his view of the job is like constant press conferences, and you know, I that's a part of the job. But I know a lot about what it takes to be mayor. Because I was the police commissioner for 14 years. I watched Mayor Bloomberg, I watched Mayor Dinkins work. It's tough work, it's hard work. Lots of meetings, lots of issues about budgets, lots of political issues, and I, I don't, he doesn't have the time to do it. If he's going to zero bond uh, every night, uh, I don't know when he squeezed these meetings in. But anyway, I did ask I him where his favorite change. spot was for late night snack, and he said zero bond. I was like, that's got to be the fanciest answer a mayor has ever given. <laughs> I know you were an early proponent of recruiting more diversity into the police force. Why did you, you know, catch on to that well before it became popular, and why do you think it's so important? Well, quite frankly, it makes the job easier. This is the most diversity in the world. If you have police officers that have a relationship, connection to some of these communities, and there's a problem. And there's always tension. There's always tension someplace in the city that, if you can, you, you know, you have to address it. So we did have a very vigorous recruitment program, and we ultimately wound up with police officers born in 106 countries. That is an incredible number, exists nowhere else. And it helped us in our counterterrorism uh, efforts, some undercover operations that we, uh, you know, that we had. We had, you know, we came in, the Bloomberg administration came in three months after 9-11. So we obviously were concerned about another terrorist, uh, terrorist attack. So we had 16 plots during our reign uh, in the city, Mayor Bloomberg is, is a mayor, and uh, none came to fruition. It was a result of good work on the part of the NYPD, good work on the part of the FBI, and just sheer luck. Uh, you know, we had a guy who went into Times Square, you know, tried to blow up his truck 
it fizzled. You know, we, we just you know we were very very lucky in that regard. So those those sorts of things, you know, factored in. But that diversity helped us in a lot of ways in, in a lot of investigations and uh, some other kind of operations as well. Interesting. So as final question, what, que what question haven't I asked you that I should have asked? <laughs> I don't know. Are the Yankees going to come back from there? If, uh, <laughs> lost uh, five in a row. All right. Are the Yankees going to come back? Oh, yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to gonna go to the World Series. Uh, I can't think of anything. But... All right. Well, in all seriousness, you know, what do you think will turn things around? Do you think things are going to turn around? Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? Uh, I'm pessimistic in the short term. You know, there'll always be a New York. Uh, young people always want to come here, meet other young people. You know, certain neighborhoods will uh, thrive. You know, Lower East Side. You know, with clubs and things down there. They're gonna, you know, they they're gonna do fine. I think the the real burden is on the middle class here. And, you know, those are the people who can't afford it, who are worried about crime, worried about being on the subway. So, you know, crime is sort of interwoven with the economy here and, you know, what it costs. I took an Uber, you know, it's now about two months ago, from Battery Park City to 34th Street, it's $40. You know, I, I'm, I'm fine. I'm in great shape. But everybody can't do that, you know? I mean, so they're being they're being squeezed out when you superimposed crime on top of that, those folks are, are leaving. There'll always be super wealthy people here. They'll always do fine. They'll have their own bodyguards and doormen and that, that sort of thing. Uh, there'll always be you know, poor people here, but it's the, it's the middle that I think is being, is being pushed, out of, uh, pushed out of New York. And it's, you know, that's, what I, uh, that's what I'm concerned about. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Super fascinating. And You're welcome. Yeah. For more world-class reporting and insightful commentary, visit NewYorkSun.com. That's NYSun.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for stories as they happen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>